Panem. Today, on the Avenue of the Tributes, all of Panem, a free Panem, will watch more than a mere spectacle. Welcome to the Three Men in a Retrospective podcast, continuation of their Hunger Games retrospective series. Thank you for your consideration. Join Garrett. He's a good guy. Matt. They torture him. And Adam. Good thing we're allies, right? As they carry on their look at the popular young adult series reviews that they started back in 2019. I never asked for this. Can Matt generate any kind of excitement for this Hunger Games prequel? I know how devastating that must be for you. Will Garrett continue his surprising love for the series? Oh, not what you were expecting. The answer to these questions and more... Better for you to know nothing. Coming up, courtesy of Percolated Media. Good luck, and may the odds be ever in your favor. The Hunger Games, The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, released November 17, 2023. Budget was $100 million even. Box office so far is $252 million. And this is directed by Francis Lawrence. Boys, we are back at Pan Am. I cannot believe we are back with the series that we did way back when. It was the second series the three of us ever did together. Can either of you name the first one we did? Four trilogy. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> Good job. The Hunger Games. I never thought we would get another Hunger Games. And you know what? Even though Matt does these schedules, we say it over and over, he has a five-year plan with these things, and I knew this was coming up, but honestly, this still snuck right the fuck up on me. <laughs> Matt was like, you know, we have a new Hunger Games in like three weeks. I was like, what? And then I kind of had to prepare for it. There's a 500-page book out that Suzanne Collins did back in 2020. I did not read it because I don't know if anyone listened to my Siskel and Eber interview I did with the author of a book he did. I, I read that. I'm going through Middle Earth because we're going to be visiting that place soon. I'm going through Stephen King still. I have no fucking time to read this goddamn book. And so I went in this thing pretty cold Adam, were you looking forward to a new Hunger Games film? I remember when the book first came out, and my first thought was, wow, that's a freaking mouthful. Okay. <laughs> you know, and then I heard they were doing a movie, of course, and I had zero interest whatsoever. But I think a lot of that is due to the way that the Hunger Games ended. If you go back and listen to those, and we talk about reading them, like I devoured those books over the course of like a weekend, all of them. I thought the first one was pretty decent. I really enjoyed the second one, Catching Fire. And I felt the third book, and I've gotten into arguments with this, I'll hold it to my day. I don't think Suzanne Collins wrote that third book. I think it was completely ghostwritten to finish the trilogy because they had just signed the rights away to get made. Because there is nothing in that third book that feels, even just written-wise, like the first two. And based on that, I didn't have a whole lot of anticipation for this one. I didn't have a desire. I don't like the idea of doing a prequel just to explain a villain. Funny being that we're 
discussing prequels here. here yeah, the end of this year is nothing but prequels, it seems like. So it's just, you know, going back in time to explain the rise of evil. I don't think it ever really worked great. And so, no, I didn't have a big desire to go back to Pan Am. But then I saw the trailer for this. And the trailer had me way more intrigued than I would have ever thought possible. So I wasn't against it, but much like you, it also snuck up on me, where suddenly I'm like, holy crap, this movie's coming out in a few days. With the strike, multiple strikes and everything else in Hollywood, I was waiting for this to get punted, and instead they, like, butted it right up against the Marvels, took screens away from that, and kind of crammed it out, mainly because I think they were able to, because it has a lower budget than so many movies of this caliber and this size. It's, It's half the budget of what they would give if it was at a different company, it surprised me that it was ready to come out. But I was, you know, based on the trailers and stuff, I was like, okay, you know what, I'm at least intrigued by what they're going to do here. All right. So after me and Matt argued about Revenge of the Sith, here we are talking about another prequel. Matt, were you at least looking a little forward to a new Hunger Games or a prequel? No, to every single one of your questions. (laughs) (laughs) for a lot of the reasons that Adam just went through. I haven't read the book, because I wanted to go into this cold, no pun intended, but I was so let down by that last book, which was turned into two movies, and that should not have been done. And I think hindsight has only proven that statement to be more factual. And I'm not, as I talked about in those original shows we did, it's not like I was enamored with the franchise as a whole. I think the second movie's great. And that's the only one I have a real strong affinity for. And I am exhausted, just browbeaten with prequels, because they've become so much more increasingly common since the Star Wars prequel trilogy, and they're few and far between as far as being good. This one in particular, I'm like, do I really need to see the rise of fascism and, you know, this character? Because I lived it in 2016. I saw it in real life. Mm -hmm. I don't want to see this story, nor do I think it needs to be told. I understood everything about the Snow character within those movies. I didn't feel like I needed an explanation as to why he is the way he was portrayed, or the factors that led to him rising to power. So nothing about this interested me, and for the longest time, I didn't think this movie was actually going to get made. I thought if it was between COVID and the strikes and all these things, it would just be a direct-to-streaming video, like HBO Max would pick it up and just dump it. But then I'm like, no, they're going through with it. And then I saw a trailer for it back in probably sometime in the spring, and I'm like, okay, looks up to the quality, at least from a visual standpoint, of the movies that have already come out. But can I tell you the thing that scared me the most? And you're going to laugh when I say this. Of all things... Harry fucking Potter has ruined prequels for me with these goddamn fantastic Fantastic beasts. (laughs) And if that franchise, of all things, could crap the bed as far as this, another YA property doing the same thing, but focused on a a major character from the original series. I'm like, oh god, this is going to be... And it's the same thing. They brought back the director who had done the last three of the four movies. So I'm like, this could just be Fantastic Beasts thrown in a microwave and probably get something of the quality of a McDonald's hamburger. You hit on something that I was definitely going to mention. It's the fact that, you know, you go back to 2012. Yeah, we we, we had stories of school shootings and things. And, you know, there were dour times, don't get me wrong. 
But I tell you, since the original Hunger Games came out back in 2012, this, this country, this world, you are absolutely right. We are living Pan Am right now. We have riots. We have more school school shootings than ever. We literally had people storming the Capitol. Yes. It's crazy. And when I heard this was coming out and we were getting it this year, I really questioned that. And I, I didn't think I would be that person. It's a real ballsy thing to do, I think. I think Lionsgate, they had some success with Saw. But have they really had another big series besides Saw? And Saw is almost not comparable because those movies are so cheap to make. Exactly. In hindsight. So I will give Lionsgate credit. This new Saw movie surprised me in how much I liked it. Because much like when this Hunger Games thing was announced, I'm like, really? You're going back to Saw again? And you're digging COVID Bell up again, literally? It, it was kind of the same thought process I had. But, you know, the budget for Saw was $13 million versus this, which was, what, one-something? This was than... this was a hundred, yeah. Okay, I will give them this. They did not go the Marvel route of we're just gonna blow three hundred million dollars on a movie that doesn't warrant it. <laughs> Quantumania, excuse me. <laughs> or, you know, the Marvels. I'm like, I don't understand why that movie was made for so much money and people are wondering, Oh, these movies are bombing. Maybe you should ring back your budgets a bit more, dipshits. But a lot of their other franchises, they've done the last couple Rambo movies. Divergent was theirs, speaking of YA stuff. Yeah. At least Hunger Games can say they got to finish their series. They got to finish. <laughs> Lionsgate has distributed John Wick. I would say that's their biggest success. Now, yeah. Yeah, I, and they did Twilight, so God, they it's like they, they're picking up all the leftovers that Harry Potter left behind, <laughs> as far as YA. and But the Hunger Games movies, you know, their top three domestic grosses... Lionsgate are all the Hunger Games. And for those who did not listen to the original series, I actually did re-listen to those shows. I re-watched two of the four movies. I did not watch the final two because, as I mentioned, there's just too much going on right now. And so I was not able to go into full detail. But I, w I did listen to those previous shows. And I will readdress this. I was the one who went into Hunger Games, believe it or not, as the fan. I was the one who read that first book, was fully taken by it, and the whole series, it was recommended to me by a friend of mine. I dived right in, read the entire series within about a month and a half, and I was quite amazed at how much I did like going into this world. Let's reacquaint people. Adam, when we go back to those movies, were you a fan of Hunger Games? I was a reluctant fan of the first two books. The first book I thought was fine though extremely derivative of a lot of things. The second book, I thought, really stepped it up. and I thought they got really creative, the clock motif and all that. That was really well done, very engaging for a book. The third book, I think, is a pile of trash. It is <laughs> now it, Nowadays, it, if it was made right now, I think everybody would accuse it of being written by AI because the contract for the film uh, writes, the first book came out in 08. The second book came out in nine, and then as the second book was coming out, the film rights were acquired, and then the third book came out a year later. And I think the third book, as I said already, was written by somebody else to fulfill that contract. That third book, man, so sort of yes and no. I guess is the way that we can go about it. But I do recommend, like if somebody wants a breezy series to read, you could do a lot worse than picking up the Hunger Games series and reading it in a weekend. Yeah, I'll definitely get into, you know, I still haven't even bought the most recent Hunger Games book, but I'll get into whether I recommend that by the time we get to the end of this review. Matt, you were the pessimist of this series, correct? 
Going into it, yes. I was a little bit past the target demographic when these were coming out by a couple of years. So I kind of looked at it as the glut of Twilight and Divergent and The Host. You could go through a laundry list of all the YA books that were trying to capitalize on Harry Potter. This one, I think, had the most legitimacy as far as people telling me, and I have to say people telling me because I haven't read the books, that they're well written, there's some good stuff as far as thematic context for readers, and I still hold true to that. And looking at the movies, the first two get, and I'm with Adam, I think the last story, which should have been one movie, and I'll keep saying that, was about as big of a clusterfuck of an ending that I've ever seen. And I am convinced, much like Adam, that somebody else wrote it. Because I wonder if it's like what Thomas Harris did with Hannibal, where it's like you read that book and like the prose isn't consistent. It really feels like it was somebody else. It wouldn't surprise me at all. But I think the thing that saved the Hunger Games movie for me, at least the first two, was I actually liked the Katniss character. And then I completely turn on her in Mockingjay. Mm-hmm. And the biggest problem, I think, and I, and I said this, was you have a love triangle, and two pieces of the triangle I wish I could shoot with an arrow. And I, I think it's just bad. Oh, and what carries it for me are the supporting players. Much like Harry Potter, it's really well cast. You know, like Woody Harrelson, obviously Donald Sutherland, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Julian Moore, Jeffrey Wright. You know, there's a, there's a great collection of actors that can add to this world... Jennifer Lawrence does as well, but God, Gail and PETA, I couldn't stand either one of them. And I just think the way it ended, it was just so flat. To the point where, like, I think scenes are are missing, and it doesn't do enough to sort of explain, like, not to review those movies again, go back and listen to those shows, but... Yeah, and the thing that with this was, I'm like, okay, we're doing another Forbidden Romance based on the trailer. I'm like, so we're, we're basically doing a remake under the guise of a prequel what I looked at from the trailers, and that scared me. Mm. And to your point, it's every YA dystopian. It's the Maze Runner. It's Hunger Games. It, it, Another one, yeah. Every, every single, the host, like, every single one of these has got that exact same, I mean, you might as well throw it in like a bad booking in the middle of a pay-per-view that's just required to stretch the time. And the difference is Harry Potter, yes, there is a love triangle, but because they start out as kids, it's not immediate. Once puberty hits, it becomes much more of a focal point, but that's the way to do it. It never takes away from the overall, though. Yeah. It it never goes off on a side quest just to have a romantic. You get the Half-Blood Prince, so we talked about that. It's funny, because even that franchise, you could argue the weakest part, the love part, especially with Ginny. And I also have to say, when I looked at this movie, I'm like, Rachel Ziegler's not in my good graces currently, and I'm like, oh, I gotta watch a movie starring her and this main actor. I have no idea who he was. Oh, yeah, I'll get into that. What did you have against Rachel Ziegler? Her mouth. <laughs> I, I think she said a lot of stupid things, particularly about Snow White. She's actually said all the things that people accuse Brie Larson of saying. Yeah, it's like, really? and Brie Larson really has not said anything that egregious. Where you look at Rachel Ziegler, I'm like, uh, oh, my God, just stop talking. And I, I know she can act. <laughs> Because I, I saw West Side Story. Yeah, so did I. Yeah, yeah Spielberg's movie I like, everybody. Yeah, go figure. But she wasn't selling me, this main guy. I didn't know who he was. Then I looked at the rest of the cast list. I'm like, okay, you cast Viola Davis and Peter Dinklage. All right, I'm in. You, you got Yeah, me. I thought the exact same thing. I got to say, boys, again, I am the fan of this series. But when I watched the trailer to this movie, I never felt so old in my life. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there was nobody. And then here comes Peter Dinklage. Here comes Viola Davis. And all of a sudden, I'm like, okay, perfect. I'm here. But who the fuck are these other people? 
yeah, trying to go through this cast list to me is like watching the Grammy Awards, and I'm like, nope. nope, nope, nope. Oh, Lifetime Achievement Award, Viola Davis. Oh, thank God. So, yeah, I'm with you. I mean, I know of Rachel Ziegler. I'm sure she's an amazing talent. I have yet to see West Side Story. I'll get to it when Matt and I finally tie Garrett down and make him do a few musicals here. <laughs> you know, one more, we can get a Hugh Jackman musical trilogy even. But Viola Davis, I was actually extremely excited about because I think she's made some amazing choices recently that have let her just go for it. Peter Dinklage, it's amazing with Rachel Ziegler being in Snow White and Peter Dinklage's comments about Snow White. <laughs> they work together in this one. That's funny. But other than that, I got no idea who it's in this movie. And that's okay. I mean, when the first mm-hmm. one came out, nobody knew who Jennifer Lawrence was. Well, she had been nominated for an Oscar, but you're right. She hadn't hit that stratosphere yet. No, but she did have X-Men the year before. Yeah. And that's what it just... And I look at those two at basically kind of the same time. She broke out massively all in the span of like one 12-month period. Yeah, it was winter of 2009 through winter 2012. Yeah. So I've heard Rachel Ziegler's name a lot, but she wasn't the draw for me in this. You know, like I said, I thought they did a pretty damn good job with the marketing. Enough that I was like, huh, I'm not going to hate myself for going in to do this. I may hate Garrett at the end of it, but I'm not going to be upset <laughs> in the door. And I realized, Garrett, this is the second tier English movie we'll be reviewing this year because he was the villain in Transformers. Days of, and Days of Future Past, too. Yeah, but that was, God, a decade ago at this point. Yeah. Holy crap. But I'm like, yeah, he's starting to get all those franchise checks now. <laughs> yeah. And Elf. I mean, God, he's got to get a ton of health checks, too. <laughs> oh, shoot. He's in Infinity War. All right, boys. Well, we've done some build-up here. Oh, before we get to the movie. It's funny that you guys have both just completely lambasted the decision that Francis Lawrence made to split Mockingjay into two films. Because guess what? He almost did it with this one, too. Then he got advice that said, don't you remember what happened when you did that last time? <laughs> I mean, this is a 500-page book. It's 520 pages. At that length and girth, uh, that, I think, would be is the biggest book by far in this series. Because uh-huh. all the other ones are pretty dang yeah. like, YA-sized. Yeah, I've looked at them. I wouldn't call them breezy by any means. But look, here, here's the thing, though. The only Harry Potter movie they split was the last one. And I would argue that was a necessity. Not having read these, I can't fully judge, but... I'm surprised if they were going to go this route, and you would think with COVID and streaming and all these other things, why not do this as a miniseries? I thought of that too. Because we did have a Watchmen series a couple years ago. Why not go that route with this, a very long book? Yeah, and it's, Watching you know, series won a ridiculous amount of awards. That thing is loved. Mm. Yeah, and some of the most successful shows have been miniseries, you know, True Detective, Fargo. Yeah. They've gotten a lot more cinematic. They can afford big names now. I'm not saying that doing this movie in one go is a mistake, because we'll talk about the movie, but I do think if they were going to split it, I think that would have been the route to go. I'll say, before we get into it, though, (laughs) I think he made at least two different movies here. All right. Well, with that being said, let's go ahead and just jump in. So, movie starts off, we get Matt's favorite thing, which is about three or four or five different logos on the screen. (laughs) I was getting madder and madder. (laughs) I always think of you, man. I will sit in a theater. These will pop up, and I will always laugh. I'm like, fuck, Matt's so pissed right now. (laughs) I almost walked out of Napoleon 30 seconds in because there were like eight logos. 
And Ridley Scott's logo takes fucking forever. Yeah, it does. It does. It's a DreamWorks logo for sure. That's another one that takes forever. Speaking of which, though, before we get to the movie, Matt, you went opening weekend to this, correct? Yeah, I did. I went that Friday night. And it was packed. I was surprised. Wow. I mean, it was around Thanksgiving time, so I think people were looking for something to do. But this movie is doing relatively well, all things considered. It shows the brand still has some cachet. And that was the one thing I was worried about, because it's been, what, eight years since the yeah, last one? eight years, huh? Look, by conventional Hollywood standards nowadays, that's a long time to wait. And we've had so many things since then in this particular subgenre, too. I mean, let's not even get into, like, Squid Game. Adam, you went opening weekend as well? I went a few days afterwards. I didn't go that very first weekend. I was in it, I want to say, the Thursday after. So within the first week. And it was a decent-sized crowd, quarter full, which for a Thursday early afternoon, a week after, isn't bad. And yeah, surprisingly, this movie, or I guess not a surprise that it knocked the Marvels out of first place with the way that that went. It beat Disney in its second week. It beat a new Disney animated movie in its second week. So this thing had longer legs than Rachel Ziegler in West Side Story, because this thing, during the week and on weekends, it didn't fall nearly as much as other ones have. So it's kind of surprising how well it's done. Yeah, what I was going to say is it has done decently, but it's still the lowest grossing Hunger Games movie yet. Which is why I got to say, doing this movie for, and I hate to use the word only when we're talking about nine figures, but only $100 million. If this is at WB, if this is at Disney, it's $200 million before marketing. Easy. I still think you could have trimmed $30 million out. But that decision to keep it at $100 million is going to help them a lot. Well, you can tell throughout this movie where they cut corners as far as the budget. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah. I have notes about that as we go. All right. Well, I went the Tuesday after it was out. I like seeing the movies on those days because, like I mentioned a hundred times before, that's one of my days off. I'm off Tuesday nights and Wednesday nights. And so I like to go Tuesdays or Wednesdays to these, which is why sometimes the three of us kind of record these reviews a little later than normal. But I asked Jen. Jen did the whole tap me on the shoulder, said go have fun. She wanted no part of this. I think the concept of Hunger Games really scares the fuck out of her. She was like, "Uh uh-uh. Staying away. So I asked the guy who I went and saw The Exorcist with, and what did he tell me? I don't want to see kids getting killed. So guess what? I went by myself, went to an IMAX screening of it. Anything I have to say about the movie, I will say Francis Lawrence knows how to shoot an IMAX film. This movie was glorious in IMAX. All right. Well, here we go. So after the logos, we cut to two kids. They're running from hyena-looking things at night. And I have to say, I do like the way this starts. It's pretty foreboding. I was kind of surprised we didn't get more of this. Me too. Because I don't know the lore or the history like a fine-tooth comb. Is this supposed to be the rebellion that caused the Hunger Games to be installed in the first place? Correct. That's how I took it. It's one scene. And they mention his father is killed off-screen. They talk about his father a lot. Mm-hmm. You know, he has a big presence in the movie, as we'll find out. But I thought we'd get, like, we'd physically see him with Corey Lanus at some point, or more of him as a kid, you know, just trying to survive. It's contained just in this opening. But when I was realizing what I was seeing, and it took me a moment, but I'm like, oh, okay, we're actually going to see the rebellion. But then I thought maybe this would play out throughout the rest of the course of the movie, interspersed, intercut. So it's here to kind of set you up in a different time frame, and then that's it. And I think that's a weird decision. I don't dislike it, but at least it lets you know kind of where you are and that, 
of course, it sets up themes and it sets up the character, but it's done with all the subtlety of a fast food burger. Second McDonald's reference in this. Uh, <laughs> yep. I guess it's befitting for something called the Hunger Games. We hear that Snow's father is dead, and it is up to him to make his father proud. And then we cut to Snow half naked in his study with the compass. This caught me off guard. I'm sure it did. Here we have our protagonist, who will eventually become our antagonist in the future films, our Mr. Snow. I feel this guy is in the wrong movie. He would have made a perfect Kendall in Barbie from earlier this year. Here, it's, it's a weird bit of casting. Switch him and Ryan Gosling, I could go with this character. I eventually go with him, but it takes me a while. What I have against, quote-unquote, him, is I don't get 25-year-old Donald Sutherland. I don't see this Coriolanus snow. Yes, I'm going to keep saying anus because I can't, because they kept calling Corio, Coriolanus, like, oh my god, fucking, you know what? I damn the name in this movie repeated over and over. If I didn't have Donald Sutherland to hold him up against, because Donald Sutherland is an imposing figure in mm-hmm. those movies. This guy just doesn't feel like he's in any way, and I'm sure it's directed, trying to act like Donald Sutherland. And you could have looked at Sutherland's young movies and been like, hey, I'm going to try to go towards his performances of what he would have done young. And that's not being done here. So it's completely removed from the President Snow we get later on. And I don't think we ever get to feel like we're that President Snow. I am so glad you didn't say what I thought you were going to say, which is DH him and show him like that. <laughs> I would oh, have. No, just get keep. <laughs> I'm going to start with the superficial stuff and then work to the actual characterization. I see no real physical resemblance to Donald Sutherland. It's an immediate disconnect. It's ironic, because with that blonde hair, I'm like, if this movie was made eight years ago, Tom Felton would have been the obvious choice. I was thinking that, too. <laughs> and I actually think he'd be pretty, he would have been pretty good. But there would have been the people saying, oh, he's just playing Malfoy again. As far as the character goes, I will give it this, having just rewatched the prequels. I'm glad they didn't do the Anakin Skywalker thing of, oh, he was always a good kid who just got corrupted. That's not really the case. He's an opportunist. He has no qualms about self-preservation, even if it means doing some heinous shit. I'm glad he wasn't portrayed as this young, bushy-eyed optimist who gets transformed to the, the emperor of evil. They did go the Darth Vader route by doing what those movies did. It takes until the last five minutes of the movie for me to even see a trace of snow. And I think that's partially intentional, And they're trying to do that to justify another movie after this, because this doesn't end with him where you think he'd be. But I don't get a lot from his performance that really echoes Sutherland at all. And that's a huge problem I have. And I also don't think he's that good of an actor. Yeah, I felt the same thing. I know he doesn't have too much experience, and they wanted that when they cast him. This was a big Francis Lawrence call. He really wanted this guy. And I'll stand by my Ryan Gosling choice. I think that he would have been great here. He might not resemble Donald Sutherland at all, but I I could buy him as the character. He's about 20 years too old at this point. True. Yeah, because he's supposed to be like 18 in this. That's true. But Like Ryan Gosling's in his 40s. (laughs) Yeah, oh, okay. A 20 years ago, Ryan Gosling. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I could see that. I eventually warm up to him. I will say that. When he gets into the relationship he gets into, I warm up to him. The final thing he does in this movie is when I really am like, yes. But still, at at this point, I can't make that association with Donald Sutherland at all. He was still a little bit younger. I think Taron Egerton would have been the perfect choice. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. He's a little bit older now. If they made this five years ago, he probably could have done it. There were other people who could have done this better. But I also think there's such a disconnect 
to the character he will become, I kind of have to keep reminding myself that this is actually going to grow up to be Donald Sutherland. Exactly. Yeah, I, I kept telling myself that. In fact, when I went to see it, I went in, like I said, pretty cold. I did know it was a prequel. That was it. It took me at least 20 minutes for me to realize, oh, shit, this is the character who's going to be Donald Sutherland's character. It gets worse in the second half of the movie where it looks like Eminem from 8 Mile. Oh, jeez. Yeah. Where I'm like, oh, God, I really, I, now I really don't see it. <laughs> so Snow goes to Tigress, his best cousin ever, who gives him a shirt that she straightened for him. And here's a character from the previous trilogy. Yeah, the one that quadrilogy. just shows up out of the blue and mocking yeah. Jake. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, wait, who are you again? <laughs> And he's being called the future president of Pan Am by his family, and he swears that they'll be able to pay the rent when he gets this job that he's going for. He moves through the very brightly lit streets and into the building where he starts visiting with some nose-in-the-air assholes. And then we meet Sejanus as we hear the Hunger Games theme, and this is the guy who's also from West Side Story, right, Matt? Yeah, and I sense some nepotism because he's dating Rachel Zegler. Yep, I sense it too. I love how this is like, it's like if you took Hogwarts and mixed it with Heathers. <laughs> wow. Snow hears that there's no price today as we cut to Valunia Gall on the podium, played by Viola Davis. We reviewed Miss Davis before, and I wasn't too kind to her in those movies that we did. But it was not because what she brought. I just thought the movies that she was in that we covered really sucked. I know this woman has won an Oscar, but I have to say, I have never liked Viola Davis more than I'd like her in this film. <laughs> she looks like she is having an absolute blast, and I thought this was a great bit of casting. This was something that I didn't see coming. You know, I didn't really know that she was going to be the villain of this piece, but man, she fits this part like a glove. I love her here. Outside of the fact that she's playing Amanda Waller again, just a slightly no, more she's exact not, thing. dude. This is completely different than Amanda Waller. Don't give me that bullshit. Not when she's watching the Hunger Games, monitoring them like Amanda Waller does with the Suicide Squad. <laughs> it's like they made her more Doctor Frankensteinish. Not that it's a problem because she's one of the most interesting people in the movie, and it's clear she's having fun. I like that there's a playfulness to this performance that, quite frankly, is needed in, yes. in a movie like this because. It takes place in a heightened world. But I like that for a prequel, this strikes the right balance of being in that world, but not yet 100% to where it feels like the original series. Because like the prequels in Star Wars don't really look like the original trilogy in almost any way, except when they go to fucking Tatooine. Here, it still feels like Panem, but the technology is not quite as futuristic as we'll see in the first Hunger Games movie. So I think they do a good job of world building in that respect and she her and someone else are probably my favorite people in this movie and much like the other movies i think this movie's really elevated by the supporting cast yeah, she absolutely steals the show when she's on you can't look away from her that's designed but she is having a blast it seems it's like she came on set and was like i'm going to just do whatever i'm gonna take it as far as i can go until the director tells me okay that's too much and the director never had the balls tell her that's too much and I'm happy for it. I think she's a blast. And yeah, she is absolutely captivating. And she also brings the menace, though. She Definitely. brings that evilness that you kind of need to see. And that brought up a good point. Here is where I see the steps for what The Hunger Games becomes in, see, what is it, 60 years from this point that we get later. 64. So, yeah. 64. So I like that we're getting that. And some of it is a little too close, some of it's a little too far. But I think she's a delight. Great casting choice. Great performance. 
funny story about how Lawrence came up with the idea of casting her. He saw a meme of her looking out the window in The Help, but somebody had made it into this horror-type creature, and so he looked at that, and he was like, you know what? I think she'd be good, and he called her up, and she jumped right at the chance. She was really excited to do it, and I'm with both of you. She's, she's a delight. All right, we then meet the other character that Matt's talking about, Dean Highbottom, designer of the games, played by Peter Dinklage. Matt, you were excited about this, huh? Yeah, and I think he actually gives my favorite performance in the movie because his character comes from a place that I wasn't expecting. Because the first thing you see is him drinking. It's like their version of heroin. Yeah, pretty much. Basically, and I'm like, oh, he's just a drug addict. And then you find out the reason why. I'm like, oh, now this movie takes on a whole new context without coming across as slight or short-sighted with its writing. Um, So when you learn why he's playing this the way it is, it tracks completely. I think he's great, but I also like Peter Dinklage in almost everything. Yeah, same. So I, I do have a certain amount of bias. But he, much like Viola Davis, adds legitimacy to all this. Because he takes it seriously without doing the, I'm just here for a paycheck. Because I think there's more to this character than you would expect. When he has to act in this little room, especially at the end, he does really shine. Much better than I was expecting, honestly. I didn't think they would really use him that much. You know, I thought maybe he would get the X-Men type role that he got in Days of Future Past, which is a pretty decent role, but this is even better than that, I think. I think he really shines here. Right. I think one of the things that Dinklage brings is he takes the role serious, and he does it without being overly serious in the movie. He's got gravitas. He brings what needs to get brought. And you could easily overlook his role and his spondedness and everything else if you're not paying close attention. You're not hammered with it. You could gloss over so much of it and just look at this as a prequel to Battle Royale. But if you pay attention to the dialogue, which isn't always easy to do in this movie with the, with the sounding and stuff, but if you pay attention, there really is some depth part. And, oh my gosh, it comes out at the end of this, and hopefully you're sticking around to understand all that and can tie it together at the end. Because the weaves that are, that are woven, they're probably more impressive than what we got in the original Hunger Games, but you just got to be aware that it's happening. You can tell how primitive these Hunger Games are because High Bottom's reading off these contestants as girl or boy, of which the 12th belongs to Snow. The girl from the 12th is Lucy Gray, played by Rachel Ziegler as Snake's Attack. This is one of the prequel things that drove me nuts. Of course she comes from the same district as Katniss. (laughs) They contradict why and how she's getting picked throughout the rest of this movie when you learn about her and her group. And where and where she comes from and what and why is she going? Not Nigel, where does she come from? Where does she go? I don't understand later. You know what? I'm going to jump a little bit. If she's kind of like a gypsy and goes from place to place, how the hell is her name in a hat in 12? Yeah, how do they have her blood sample if she's like a nomad? Yeah. Well, apparently Rachel Ziegler is a Snow White hater. So I will go ahead, go to Adam first. Adam, how do you feel about Rachel Ziegler in this film? Well, the thing about Lucy Gray is once you get introduced to Lucy Gray, is that Lucy Gray comes up and Lucy Gray is a character that they make sure that you know that Lucy Gray is around every time they say the name Lucy Gray. (laughs) Holy crap. So, (laughs) sorry, was that a little on the nose? Because it sure as hell is throughout the rest of this movie that every time they talk about Lucy Gray, they make sure that they say Lucy Gray to Lucy Gray. (laughs) This is such a repeat of what we got before. It's, if, do it differently. Do something a little differently. Yes, she's not taking the place of her sister, but it's set up that, oh man, it feels so much like what they did already with Katniss. 
And then when she gets up there and when she sings, I turn on this character in about three seconds. And it's not that the character sings. It's that I feel like I'm watching fucking The Voice, where it is so produced when she's up there as nobody out. I mean, I'm surprised that somebody in the audience didn't have fucking a piano and a guitar. It is so in tune. It's like they ripped it off the soundtrack. That's how amazing she sounds on stage. And it's so in your face that I'm like, I I just don't get it. There's no rawness to this character. She's a decent actress. She's a good singer. But I can't stand the way they decided to introduce us to Lucy Gray when they brought Lucy Gray up on stage (laughs) after they called out Lucy Gray's name. One thing I will say to that, about the do something different, I can understand this because this is one thing I do associate with those first four films, is this is what Snow saw in Katniss when he met her. He's making that association. So I get why they went this route, and I get why Suzanne Collins went that route with this book. Now, when it comes to her singing, you are absolutely right. The singing comes off as awkward. I did not know I was going to a musical. Despite what you guys say, I am not fully against musicals but what i will say is there are times when she does it and you are right she is fully produced even when she's in the bar you can hear her over everything but i don't have any real problems with this character as a character i think she's fine but i will say that it's just a little off and i think that has more to do with the actor than the actress god damn every time she gets up and sings i half expect a promotional advertisement for the soundtrack for this movie that they're so desperately trying to sell i wanted to go to the hanging tree myself and just get it done after a certain point you know for a musical it's very one note with what they do with this character and god does she overdo the southern bell accent it sounds like such an affectation that it's laughable and you leave me to believe that not any one of those peacekeepers wouldn't just beat her ass and let her sing that whole time yeah. Especially with Penem being much less showy as they will become with the way they advertise the tributes. I don't think this would have slid, or, or at least they would have taken that classic like hook and yank her off the stage. Because for something that this movie's built around, they go back to the well, and it's just too similar to Cadmus for me in a lot of ways. Where instead of a whistle being the calling card, it's an actual song. The one part I like, we don't get it confirmed until later, is that this is already corrupt enough that somebody can force her into the games because somebody else wanted her man or she cheated on I didn't even fully get it. But two women catfighting over a dude was what got her name forcibly paid. And I do like that it's already corrupt enough that it's not fairly chosen. While all this is going on, we're also hearing Snow make suggestions to Gull about, uh, how about the more sponsors they get, the more stuff they get. They get rations. This is also the first time that all of these tributes get a mentor. We're seeing the development from the ground up, and I do kind of like that when it comes to this stuff. Yeah, I've seen Solo. I like the ship and the gun and the sidekick and everything else all in the span of about a one hour time. (laughs) Well, they didn't have snow until this year, so I can see why he would be the one who would kind of change it a little bit. Yeah, yeah. I think the time frame is what, because this is the ninth Hunger Games, I think? Tenth. Tenth. Oh, this is the 10th. This is the 10th. Okay. For some reason, I thought they should have made a big deal about this being the 10th, and that's why all these changes are coming for it. Okay. Never mind. Strike it. Strike it from the record. (laughs) Snow tells High Bottom that he plans to go to university, even though the Snows don't really have a pot to piss in at this point. Tigress warns Snow not to discount Lucy's chances, no matter what district she's from. Snow arrives at the... What district is she from, technically? (laughs) (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. 
Snow arrives at the chain, which drops Lucy Gray, Lucy Gray, Lucy Gray, right at him. <laughs> God, you, it's like the fucking Where's Peta game from Mockingjay. <laughs> <laughs> which drops Lucy off. He hands her a flower and welcomes her to the Capitol. He tells her that he's her mentor and that he means to take care of her. She says, good luck with that, and then leaves. One of my pet peeves with these movies, with cinema in general, bad prosthetics. I have expected this wig every time he's outside to just go flying into the wind. It's bad. Snow jumps on her transport where he's jumped by a few people on the train, but he talks them out of being the crap out of him. Because he has to live because the plot requires that he live. <laughs> Here we go with that again. This is the yeah. shit you brought up every single one of those fucking prequels. Here we go. And that's the problem with prequels is he is never in danger in the course of this movie. You know why? Because I know he lives for 64 more years. And if you're one of 24 people in this thing and you've got a 1 in 24 chance to survive, you, there's no way you're not going to kill this piece of shit. We then are introduced to Lucky Flickerman, played by Jason Schwartzman. I like this character. Is that bad to say? <laughs> I like Jason Schwartzman this, in this movie. This is how you show your connection to yes. who comes later. This is how you do it differently, but show the evolution before it. It took me a moment to realize that they weren't using the same character. Yeah, they weren't using Stanley Tucci. Because he is really going for Tucci. But I was like, man, how old is Flickerman supposed to be when his 80s, but just great genetics or something, or some type of medicine or whatever. Mm -hmm. I didn't realize it was a descendant, but he has the same feel, but it's different enough. I like the way they did Flickerman here. This felt obligatory to include this character, especially if he was a relative, mm -hmm. but... I don't mind it because I like Jason Schwartzman. He's not playing it exactly like Stanley Tucci did. But is it just me, or does when he talk, he sounds eerily similar to Ryan Reynolds as Deadpool? I didn't get that because I don't think of Deadpool too much. You will. <laughs> God. <laughs> That's the only Marvel movie they're releasing next year. <laughs> Lucky interviews Lucy, and he compliments her dress as she introduces them to Snow. There's a meeting about the games where it's debated on whether the games will be washed or not. That's another thing I found interesting about this. They are still on the fence on whether to continue this thing because it's not getting a bit of ratings. So I like, again, that Snow is trying to be inventive here and think of ways to improve this. I think we should have had some more of this. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think, you know what? You open this to a montage of the Rebellion, and then the first, second, third, fourth, and fifth, they've been Hunger Games. And just something to show maybe the spectacle and then it completely receding away and then need to bring that back. I think you can do something pretty magical there. Show the desensitization and you could have the big chart of the ratings going down year after year. Yeah, <laughs> and have some people that got killed, got removed. Did you get a little bit of it? I think you really could have had that be the showcase, especially as long as this movie is, and the telling us it's a three-act structure, literally on screen, hit that note a little better. You could have adapted it better by putting those things in. Snow's asking how the capital is now supposed to be everyone's government, and how does the killing of children justify this existence? He says people need to get close to the contestants in order to care and find someone to root for and against. And Goal says that this will be an interesting test. Snow says he's bad news as he tells Lucy he might be able to help her if she can try singing in the arena. To Matt's point, she never should have been able to finish that song when her name got picked. She should have been knocked out by a peacekeeper. So that when it's like sing, sing, she already hates it so much. And that refusal should be that much more. It shouldn't be just about I'm not singing except for myself. It should be that she already got 
punished, got knocked out, got dragged away for singing. Or they shot somebody in front of her because she was singing. Yeah. Yeah. The thing that drove me nuts in this movie that felt like a bad relic, her pet black friend. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I was like, good God. I thought this trope died with frickin' Bagger Vance. <laughs> South Park said that's a Tolkien black kid. <laughs> Snow then tells Lucy that he once ate a whole thing of paste and it was tasty. She tells him that he seems like a good man and it would have been nice to have met him under better circumstances. Like, no, he's not. No, she's not. <laughs> There's an overtaking of the district as he's taken in. Snow is told that he must use Lucy or he'll end up dead just like his father. We're told that the games must go on and that there will be a televised introduction of each tribute so the world can get to know them. This fucking overtaking, that these rebels taking this base, I mean, they blow this arena up before it's even used. And yeah, not that it was fully stock to begin with, because I do like how primal these games are in yeah. comparison to the... But I was surprised, because this happens, and I'm like, okay, you know what, I guess they're not going to be able to use this arena. No, they still do it. It shows we're not to the future of the Hunger Games yet, so it's not a bad way to go. I think it's kind of clever. And it threw me off. I knew this movie was going to be loud, but man, when this fucking explosion happens, I'm like, holy shit, I almost jumped in my freaking chair in the IMAX screen. (laughs) Also a way to thin out some characters. Exactly. Snow tells Lucy that his mom died at childbirth, and then he says that this introduction will be her last chance to get on people's good side before the games. Snow and Defco go to see Gull, who dares Defco to reach for her proposal through these snakes. She reaches in and is fatally bitten, as the snakes do not recognize her scent, and we will find out why later. I thought this was a pretty cool little trick that Gull does here, and again, it's just so brilliantly done by a master villain. I love her in this so much. Um, like this? I cause There's so much in this movie that it goes over, but the undercutting the fighting with them at school is almost its own movie, and so much of the story, so much of the ward, the ranking of class, this girl who's, hey, everybody's been in school where you got somebody who's just hanging on to the team project that doesn't do any work. Yeah, Adam. You know. (laughs) (laughs) But if you don't pay attention to a line or two here, it goes by pretty damn quickly. And so much of it's kind of unsatisfying because you don't, I don't know, you're killing people to kill them, and that's cool, but I don't care about why some of these people have issues because it's not fully thought out. Yeah, this Defco, like, we barely meet her before she's taken in like this, right? And so we don't make this association until later. Mm-mm. Yeah, it's got the problem that a lot of these movies of this ilk do where only certain characters matter and everyone else are just background extras. I thought this was going to be the whole movie of more backstabbing amongst the students. There'd be a lot more build-up to the scholarship, and then the climax It's revealed, oh, it was always a sham. Which it kind of is, as we'll find out. Even the kid whose dad is putting up the scholarship and his friends who's not, I need a beautiful mind kind of heart on the wall to follow some of these relationships they're trying to make us care for in the film. Gaul tells Snow that she's going to recommend that her team fulfill all the suggestions of the proposal under his name. The tributes make their way into the arena, which is a pretty awesome design. I do like the design work in this. You can tell that Lawrence really did want to bring the same type of design stuff that he did in those other films in this one, but make it more primitive, like you guys have mentioned. It's got a Colosseum type. Yes. You know, of, mm-hmm. of being led to slaughter. So, yeah, it's a smart kind of back off kind of a way because it would have been easy to make this a little too shiny a little too prequely but by doing it this way you can at least make it feel like it is in the before times the only thing that drove me nuts is i'm like of course there's a fucking bow and arrow well 
How much yeah. more primitive do you get than a bow and arrow? Come on, it's, it's going to be there. Uh, let's see. The, right. They could have just given them pitchforks and melee weapons. A slingshot? Uh, they, okay. Because like, if you just gave them all swords, this shit will be over in 30 seconds. Lucy begs Snow to not let her die here tomorrow as a massive explosion done by the rebels happens and Snow is stuck. She rescues him as she's dragged away, and Snow then wakes up. He sees her sing her song at the tribute introduction, and it would seem his plan to endear her to the public is working as the donations flow. Yeah, it's like the pandemic equivalent of GoFundMe. Right? I was thinking, Adam, remember those old telethons from when we were kids? Like... A big old tote board. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Keep your calls coming in. <laughs> You know, it would have been better if it was the Muppets instead of actual actors. Oh, shit. <laughs> Snow sneaks to Lucy and gives her more advice, such as running for the walls since they were blown out by the bombs. He says he can't let her die because she saved him. He then promises to get her out of there. He... This never feels genuine. I'm sorry. Like, this this is such a weird... The movie has to tell you that they're in love because these two don't have much in the way of chemistry. I didn't feel the love until later. I do eventually feel it, but not at this point. We talked in the prequels how one of the only reasons Lucas gave as to why he cast Hayden Christian is because he thought him and Natalie Portman looked together. I think these two look good together, but they don't really have that chemistry that you're looking for. I agree with you there, Matt. I think they're two pretty people that look good separately. They get photoshopped together on the cover of a magazine. I just, eh, I just don't believe them together. But I don't think either one of them is capable of showing love and care and affection for the person they're acting alongside. Snow tells Lucy that he's seen what war can do to people and that they will win this together. And this is the end of Act 1, by the way. We're going on to Part 2. Yes, keep in mind, this movie throws up giant black cards. It's like Part 1. I know. Part 2. (laughs) This is when the games start. Highbottom tells Snow that he might want to find a seat near a door. Lucky tells everyone to smile. After all, that's why we have teeth. <laughs> Great line there. <laughs> like, I mean, the dude is a weatherman. I know. Garrett, <laughs> you've been in news. Some of these people are nothing but as fake as these, this guy. You are them. absolutely right. Yes, they are. <laughs> Lucky then shows an envelope which contains a prediction, and he plans on opening this at the game's end. They walk up to their marks in the arena, and the games are getting ready to start. And are you guys feeling any bit of tension here as these games are getting ready to start in this primitive arena? No. No. I really wish they did. I remember that first Hunger game when they are on it, and there's that countdown. And the second one, even more so. And there was a quickening of the pace, and oh my god, what's about to happen? A couple things. I know Lucy's at least going to survive the initial onslaught. And I know they're going to thin it out a little bit, but I'm also realizing that we're not even at the halfway point yet. we got a long way to go. We're going to have the games, and I'm like, oh, goddamn, they are going to drag this out for a long time. Spoiler alert, they do. But I'm not excited to see what's about to happen here. And maybe I shouldn't be raring and ready to go to watch a bunch of kids kill each other, but that is the movie that I'm here to watch, and it doesn't have me excited. This dragged so much because i i know a she's not gonna die this felt like oh you have to put the hunger games in this book because it's in the title because this shit is really half-baked and honestly this whole second act is kind of what hurts my overall enjoyment of the movie we needed to have somebody that for the last 20 minutes we thought was going to be until the end and they get killed within 10 seconds of this bell going off 
Interesting. I thought this Lucy chick could go at any time. I didn't think she would even survive, and that that would be what would drive Snow to the brink of insanity. That would have been. Uh, that, that would have been. That would have been the freaking Star Wars problem, though. Of oh, I turned evil because my girlfriend died. Well, yeah, but. All right, you guys are right. She has to survive the initial onslaught. But as they get to know each other, I could see them taking her from him. And they kind of do. We'll get to it. But when it gets to these games, I felt anyone could have died here. Lucy goes to an underground corridor as the pack arrives. Lucky lambast some crew members for vomiting at what they've just seen. As we also see a kid strung up and axed in the neck. That was a crazy death. And this one's not as quick cutty with the editing. No. Especially compared to that first movie, they linger a lot more on bodily harm and death in this movie. Yeah, they got a couple really brutal ones. They really did. And I I did listen to an interview, a podcast interview with Lawrence this week. And what he said was that he pushes it on purpose. He knows that for every single one of these movies, he's been told to cut shit out. And he knew that he was Mm going to get told to cut shit out. So he added more and more in just so that he could be told, okay, cut this, cut this. And if he's told that, then he knows he's done a good job. Lucky tells the crowd that at any point the mentors can send in food using their newly manufactured drones. Snow goes to Plinth, who's upset at the cruelty behind the games as he's in the arena, and begs him to stop mourning his tribute Marcus. And at the request of Gull, he goes to retrieve Sejonus, though he kills one tribute as they attack. He goes to Tigris and admits that he killed a tribute, and she convinces him that despite this, he's a good man. Crazy series of events here, huh, Adam? Crazy... It's weird. It almost feels reshot the way this looks, because it doesn't look as good as the rest of the film. You know what? They're telling me that this is what starts him down a dark path from which he shall never return. (laughs) But I don't really feel that when when he confesses later. Like, this is the reasoning behind this and what it's supposed to be, and especially to this character later on, especially to the character when his discussion of Lucy Gray and when he tells Lucy Gray about what he did to this person to Lucy Gray. Yeah, it's there. To me, this entire part got nothing what they think I should have got out of it. They overpromise and underdeliver. It paid glorified lip service, even though this is supposed to be like the inciting incident, as Adam referred it to, and it only comes up again when the plot needs it to. I do find it interesting that the one person that he confides in is Tigress, and at the beginning, she's like, you know what, you're not going to end up like your father, and then she keeps saying, you're a good man, and I think by the end, she's trying harder to convince herself than convince him. I do kind of like that bit of arc that they give her throughout the course of this film. And another compliment I'll give it to, I think this is James Newton Howard's best score of the series i think the music in this is fucking awesome take out the singing take out the those actual songs i think the actual musical score itself and maybe it's just because i've listened to it a lot this week because i'm putting these intros and outros together for this fucking show but i find this music really good yeah i think it fits i think it's a good way to go so yeah i was i was all into the score the next day lucy is attacked by one of the tributes who seems to have rabies and she knocks him to his death this was another weird death here. Yeah, this was a weird... Yeah, like, he's he's foaming out of the mouth. I thought for sure that we'd get a transformation right here, which we don't. Lucy is then surrounded by other tributes just as the drones arrive. As Snow says that he's not attacking them, he's just sending in water. <laughs> They're hitting these kids in the head. I was going to say, the game makers kill more people than the actual tributes do with <laughs> yeah, these drones. They do. <laughs> hmm? The other tributes start attacking each other. As another one is stabbed, Lucy hides in a duct, and we hear seven tributes remain. Again, very primitive here. We're not seeing it displayed like it is in those other films for obvious reasons, but we do hear how many tributes are left. 
Yeah, there's not the big cannon fire. There's not the big screen that they show. And we get to watch their patrons have to be leading their side of it. Mm-hmm. So even when we don't completely get it, just watching the chairs empty out, yeah. we know that another one's gone, another one's gone. Another tribute named Ill Bill drinks poisonous water and dies as a flag is brought down and placed around the fallen tributes. This was kind of drawn out, but I kind of like this scene. It does more for their death than they did while they were living. It's a good tribute to them. <laughs> tribute. I like what it was supposed to mean. I think it was fine. I think it was one of the few moments that they're trying to get some good emotion and feel for what's going on. I mean, we should not be cheering the actual Hunger Games lest we become those in the capital. So I think these moments are important to show us that, but for the grace of what side we're on, who we are. Gaul interrupts to say that the son of the president has died as a result of the rebel bombing, and she swears by tonight a rainbow of destruction awaits the arena, even if it means there is no winner of the games. Oh, this is the Amanda Waller moment where she just goes, I'm going to kill everybody. <laughs> Snow goes to Gaul to have his stitches worked on as a drone brings in one last treat sent in by Gaul, a vat of snakes. <laughs> so we're getting the snakes from the title in the movie. And they've been around the entire film. We've mentioned it. They've popped up here and there. We're going to get a big scene with a snake towards the end of the film as well, which is memorable. But it's just funny how, oh yeah, this must be the snakes part of the title. I really wish they didn't show this in the trailer. Because I'm yeah. waiting for this scene. Ever since the first time I see that vat in her lab, for lack of a better term, one, it's really cool looking, but I just, I wish, even when it drops and happens, it, it is a big, oh, damn, moment. But by showing it over and over and over, and that's kind of the centerpiece, even of the marketing, it just takes away from the moment. But it's it's pretty damn cool. And I think for the budget they had, they only spent, like I said, $100 million. I think the effects look pretty good here. These look better than those dog things we saw in the other movies. Yes, they do. God, yeah. By the way, can we just say, enough snakes this year. We've done enough shit on snakes all year. I'm done with them. Stay tuned for the Anaconda Retrospective. (laughs) Fuck off. I'll do a musical retrospective before I do an Anaconda retrospective. The snakes take out everyone except Lucy, who once again sings her way out of trouble. Oh, boy. Oh, God, this this is a Snow White move. (laughs) (laughs) I got to say, she can sing. Yeah, I I agree. She absolutely can sing. The other thing, too, though, is, one, I can't stand country music. It goes on a little long, but I also know that this is going to be the reveal of everything else like everything is obvious as to what's going to happen who's going to find out what because she's singing and snow getting the pheromones in there or whatever it was it's a full moment especially watching everybody else get just devoured by these things Mm -hmm. it's taken for the games themselves to have gone on a little too long boy they wrap up in a quick when amanda waller's had enough of this shit this would have been more surprising if you didn't telegraph snow throwing the handkerchief in the vat I thought they were going to cut to a flashback of him doing that. Because I do think by him being depicted as having done that, or the snakes actually enter the arena, I don't feel like she's in any danger. Chance of get her out, start up, and Snow tells Gull, who will watch the games if no one wins? Lucky lets loose of some birds to signal the end of the games, and Snow is congratulated. So Lucy is the last one standing here. Here comes Highbottom to say that he warned him about cheating, being punished, and he ends up confronting Snow about the handkerchief and poison. He has to work as a peacekeeper, and he gets his head shaved. (laughs) Fucking God. Or his wig shaved, whichever. (laughs) Yeah, and they're having to hold it on for duct tape so it looks convincing. (laughs) Snow ends up bribing an officer to send him to 12 instead of 8. 
on the train, Snow and Sejanus, they meet up. Sejana says that there's no way they would punish Lucy given how big a hit she is, and he promises that they'll both do great. I do like the production design here. I, I do like when they're going through and they're trained to be peacekeepers and things. Again, Lawrence is bringing the good design here. Yeah, it's pretty consistent with what is shown in the original movies. This part of the movie, I think, is actually the strongest part. This Everything from here on out is my favorite part of the movie. Because here, I honestly didn't know what was going to happen. This felt a lot less predictable from here on out than the actual games portion. The two start peacekeeper training as they watch a man being hung. Snow questions Sejanus' motivations before they hit a bar and see Lucy perform with a band. And it is here where we see Snow has pretty much fallen in love with this broad. Yeah, this is the point here where I was like, okay, he's in love with her. I didn't think when he was mentoring her, I didn't really feel it. Now I'm feeling it, even if the chemistry doesn't say it. I feel the script tells us so. I don't think he's capable of showing it. But it's also, I didn't know the book was going to take this kind of step. I didn't know where we were going. So to suddenly completely leave the capital, leave the games, and this movie takes a drastic left turn for the final third of this film. I wasn't expecting it. I mean, this is an Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. You're either going to go with this last act or you're not type of decision. It's a strange one and not one that I was expecting. I also think that it puts on Front Street with no... Because the original Hunger Games, there was a... These are representative of the different parts of the United States and everything else. This is fucking Kentucky. There is no <laughs> doubt that this is cold country Kentucky. The songs to the bars to everything. And to make it that blatantly obvious is a little eye-rolling to me. I can't go along with the Coriolanus that we had at the beginning in school and being part of the games to now being a grunt for a peacekeeper going off here. I feel like there is a movie in between the first two sections and this last section of the movie that we don't necessarily have, and I sure as hell don't want it. I'm confused. Maybe it is Buddy on the train. This entire time, I'm not understanding the relationship and that Buddy's father's relationship to Snow and the money and everything else is way too convoluted for its own good. The den of snakes, there's just too many of them going on here. As far as the romance goes, yes, because he has nothing else but her. But I also think deep down, he's just going to use her as a means to an end to get back into power or to get, get his status back. So I never feel like it's a genuine romance, which is the one thing I do appreciate. This is not the Anakin Padme thing where I'm supposed to buy that they're actually in love. And unlike Padme, there's a moment where she turns on him, which Padme never fucking does until it's too late. His friend, we never see him actually, their backstory when they were kids or Snow being tight with his father to explain what happens later on. I think that's the one thing that feels really half-baked is their relationship. We then see Snow and Sejanus. They get in a bar fight. Snow approaches Lucy as she performs her Hanging Tree song, and he says that he had to come to 12 to come try to find her. He proclaims her safe before leaning in to kiss her. So this is supposed to be the Romeo and Juliet forbidden love story, huh? That's what we're getting out of this? Yeah, but it's also the other Shakespeare parallel. I mean, you don't name him Coriolanus on yeah. coincidence. Because it's the thing of being betrayed by your home country and then siding with the enemy against them. That's certainly here. Okay, so she won the Hunger Games, and that's it? Like, I, it's just I like, think she's okay, not living in a mansion. Congratulations, you won. Go back where you came from. Like that's All, I, all I got was a Jelly of the Month Club subscription. <laughs> Snow then sees Sejanus talking to a rebel, and he approaches him on it. More singing as Lucy goes to the lake with Snow, and we see a snake slithering around her arm. Snow then I wonder if this is going to matter. Yeah. <laughs> Look, it's, a snake, it's a snake and a songbird. <laughs> I 
feel like more music is the only note Francis Lawrence is giving on set. No, because he's saying, bring the Mockingjays, because this is what Snow spots as Lucy proclaims herself a mystery. He gives her his mother's scarf, and he says that he needs to go back to the Capitol. But Lucy says he doesn't have to. He can just stay at the lake with her. She also mentions that she spots a plant that she names Katniss. Uh, Get it? This is when I thought I, it was I, taken too far. Right here. This, I cringed yeah. so hard at this. I think this is worse than anything they did in Solo. Outside of the name. To be determined. But I've been against you with all of the callbacks, Matt. But this one, I will completely go with you on. This is hideous. Yeah, if my popcorn bucket wasn't empty, it would have gotten thrown to the seat next to me. This is just... <laughs> Oh, I've been shit. with you when we've thrown popcorn at the movies. <laughs> Turn off your goddamn smartwatch so I don't have to see it, people. <laughs> Lucy tells Snow, without trust, they might as well be dead to one another. So they proclaim their trust for the other. Snow is brought in for an evaluation, and he is asked why he's been brought here. He gets reassigned, as he's told that he'll never see anyone in District 12 ever again. Ah, uh-huh. That's uh-huh. what you think. Snow calls Tigress, who tells him not to worry about her. And then he once again approaches Sejanus about talking to the rebels, and he says that he's just trying to do the right thing, and then proclaims that he doesn't need Snow to rescue him yet again. Biggest problem. They don't draw the parallel that Snow's father was a rebel, and perhaps that's why he's so against helping the rebels. Yeah, you have to really dig deep to find that out. All the really interesting stuff that you think would explain him is not depicted. It could be in the book, and the benefit of, of a book is you read it at your own pace. You can spend the time lingering on certain passages as opposed to a movie where it's being told at the director and the editor's pace. So if that is there in the book, good on Collins for putting it in there. Well, the other um, question I don't know is the books are written from Katniss's point of view. Yes. Is this book written yeah. from Snow's POV? Snow once again watches Lucy perform as he also approaches Sejanus, who's talking to Spruce and Mayfair. Snow shoots Mayfair and then sends Lucy back on the stage. Sejanus shoots Billy, who is Lucy's old boyfriend. All of this is so convoluted, I had to look at Wikipedia to get yeah. all this straightened out. I'm like, who's who? Yeah, none of these are characters are really introduced. They're kind of given a slight, this person's this person, this person's that person. Yet, I don't know who is who until I looked it up later. Oh, and everybody looks so similar to one another. They're in a back room. Yeah. Yep. And while this is going on, though, we start to get these mechanical recording mocking jays. And yep. so that story's going on. And those things are just kind of goofy looking, but you get that it's the mocking jay 65 years before. There's a lot they're cramming in here to try to justify where snow is going to go. Yeah, that's, that's my problem exactly. I'm like, yeah. I'm excited stuff is happening, but I'm confused. And initially it starts out as accidental, yeah. and then Snow just shoots the other guy. So now he turns into a murderous psychopath. On a dime. You know what? I'm going to bring up one other thing, because for anybody that has not seen it, and I think this was deliberate, but seeing Lucy Gray up on stage when they bring Lucy Gray up there to sing the Lucy Gray songs, <laughs> um, for, for anybody that hasn't seen Coal Miner's Daughter... Oh, yeah. I completely think that they took almost exactly shot for shot seeing Sissy Spacek up on stage. And because this is the cold district, that's exactly what I got a feel from. Good call. Snow tells Sejanus that all of this is his fault, and he needs to put it all together. He swears that he'll keep them safe. Snow then apologizes to Lucy, who says that she just wants to say goodbye. Snow says he doesn't want to be hung, and he tells her to meet him at the hanging tree at the first light. Meanwhile, Sejanus and Spruce, they're hung, 
And man, did I feel this hanging. It was tough to watch and hear. This is when I thought the PG-13 was pushed a little too far. This went really far. You hear those necks snap when they fall. If you're going to try to relate what these stories are supposed to be about and the class warfare and the haves, the Mm have-nots, this is important, but you've intertwined it with so much other stuff going on. But yeah, it is really effective that way. The irony of trying to pick on the ruling class versus the working class. I mean, that's what all this is about. It's the government versus the people, and you're picking the most, for the reality of what state it is, the most right-wing type of state that's mm-hmm. getting picked on by the government. That irony doesn't elude me whatsoever. This is the effectiveness that it needs to happen, but it's caught up in so much other candy-coatedness in this film. The reality of this brutality doesn't exist the way it should. Snow sees a picture of him and Sejanus, which makes him lose it and say he's sorry. Jesus, Matt, this is when what you're saying is exactly what should have happened. We should have had more of an establishment between these two besides what we've seen in the last hour, right? Yeah, and I think if this was a miniseries, you could have really fleshed Mm -hmm. this out. Definitely. Uh Lucy and Snow escape together. Snow then accidentally reveals that he killed three, and he saves himself for now by saying the third he killed was his own self so he could be with her. But we know this doesn't fool her, does it? Oh, my God. This is when you're talking to your girlfriend and she's suspecting something and you just say one thing too much. Oops. Or she's got your phone and she's like, who's Lucy Gray? Why are you talking to Lucy Gray? That's just a name. (laughs) Oh, if there was distrust between these two all along, if I felt like both of them were using each other, but I never really got that, this changes ridiculously quickly right here. Yeah, it's rushed. All it takes is one incident for her to completely turn on him. Snow gets some weapons as Lucy says that she leaves to pick some Katniss, but she's actually scared shitless, so she's taken off. It's not bad enough they said Katniss once. They did it again. Yep. Snow tries looking for Lucy as a snake that was set in a trap bites him, so she set this up, right, Adam? Oh, yeah, when Lucy Gray went out to the forest and Lucy Gray had some snakes for Lucy Gray to get and hide under the blanket that Lucy Gray had, or the jacket from snow that he gave to lucy gray so that snow could come out and keep healing for lucy gray to come out lucy gray lucy gray just say lucy please it's he yells both over and over i mean this this swirling around in the fucking forest while you're yelling out lucy gray come here lucy gray it, oh my god this goes too far but yeah i do like that she was just like uh i'm gonna get you motherfucker there is something really great about her turning on him. I just wish it was done in a better way. The lead up to it, I mean, because him being heartbroken and suddenly seeing that his mom was it, it was his mom's uh, dress. Yeah, yeah, his mom's scarf. Yeah. Whatever, yeah, the scarf. And then for her to hide the snake under it. I think that is just brilliantly. De- <laughs> We've all dealt with some pretty evil exes in mm-hmm. our lives. <laughs> yep. Yeah, that's a snake move if I've ever seen one. You know what I was thinking, though? This is why I don't date women. (laughs) (laughs) You know what's weird, though? I thought at first he was hallucinating this. It's almost shot that way. It feels that way to me. I feel like they're trying to tell us that he's, like, losing his mind from a a good guy to a bad guy. This is the, what have I done? (laughs) This is that moment? And it's just as ill-conceived and just as ill-timed. He flips so quick. Just run through the forest with a fucking machine gun, chasing the woman you think is going to rush back into your arms. We hear Jabberwockies mimicking Lucy's voice as Snow picks up his rifle and shoots her. Does he hit her? He shoots at her. This is something that really isn't closed. No, because they're really hoping to do a sequel to this movie. I don't know about that. Lawrence has been in interviews saying that it wasn't planned that way. 
No, but I'm sure the Lionsgate has already approached Suzanne Collins about writing another book. Probably. Especially with the fan theories that Lucy Gray is coin or her mother. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm like, no, that would make it worse, because, of course, everybody has to be fucking related to somebody. <laughs> Snow hears the hanging song as he fires in the air inconspicuously. He goes back to the Capitol, where he's told there has been a change of plans. Gold congratulates Snow, saying that he's passed all her tests. She also says that he's now headed to university and that the president has agreed to another year of the games. She asks him what the Hunger Games are for, and he says that they serve as a warning to people in the Capitol and that the whole world is an arena. They need the Hunger Games to remind them of who they are. And this really pleases Gull, who then tells him, Welcome home, Snow. I like this meeting quite a bit. So she was the one who arranged for him to go to District 12, not Peter Dinklage? Yeah, it was her. Yeah. Okay. It's just just odd because it's played like he did it. Yeah, it's times like this I really wish I had read the book because I think I could have actually gotten an answer out of that. I mean, I do love the thought that she, that not even Dinklage, but that she is pulling the strings yeah. of everything. The family of Sejanus makes Snow a hair as he dresses up, and Tigra says that he looks just like his father, and she does not look pleased. So this is when he has come full circle, and instead of saying, you're not going to be your father, he's, she goes, you look just like your father. Oh, boy. Done. But his father was a rebel, which means that he's not his father, but he looks like his father. And Sir Jonas's family, it's, this should matter, but it's been paid lip service and glossed over so quickly in a long movie. But it's been glossed over so quick that it just doesn't stick the landing like it needs to. I'm glad you brought that up, because I gotta tell you, this movie does feel like it ends really abruptly. For how long it is, Adam, is it just me or is this abrupt? Yeah, this seems like part two is coming out in two months. This is the ending of Matrix Reloaded. It's like, hey, Revolutions is coming at the end of the summer, everybody. It does not wrap up. It just ends. Yeah, it's like they're rushing to get to the end. Yeah. It felt like they were running out of celluloid for something that we don't know is actually going to happen. Because, like, you cut down on the Hunger Games and expand upon this. Yes. Yeah. yeah, the Hunger Games itself really should have been the minimal part of this. But And you can do the other part. You could do the build-up to it. You could do the exploration of advertising, the exploration of sponsorships, and all that means. Because mm-hmm. that is the dirtiness that this is trying to to bring back into our normal lives that it's trying to expose and how dirty it is. That is a more interesting dissection than the games itself because we've seen them multiple times. So tell the other parts of this. Do you think that Lawrence was kind of scared? Again, we've talked about it for a month, so I have to bring it up. He's scared of the Lucas, you're showing these politics and it's not exciting, so I'm just going to show these games to keep it exciting mentality. You know, it's sad that I think, and especially these last couple years, every movie trying to tell a story is being told that they're telling a political side. Even when they're just exposing both sides, everybody is running to the interwebs. They're running to water and fucking retreating into their tribalism. So I do think that is a fear. And I think it's a fear on every studio that, okay, we can't expose the what's going on because of the group yell, the group think mentality. It's sad. It's ridiculous. But I do think it could be a part of it. Yeah, I'm sort of in full lockstep with Adam. I think that that'll fester in the mind of every filmmaker, especially with an established franchise. But this whole thing of Snow being the heir to the Sejonas family, again, I just think that should have just 
been more expanded upon. I would have liked to have seen how that happened. If I cared about that family, I'd care that this happens. Well, that's true, too. <laughs> Snow makes one last stop to that of Highbottom, who says half the credit of the game should go to Snow's father, as Highbottom came up with the idea while drunk, and his father, Highbottom's best friend at the time, stole the idea from him. So we're being told this. He says he tried to stop them, yet there was snow to show that there was no price too high if it's worth putting on a good show. Highbottom says mysteries drive people mad, and he seems dumbfounded by snow being here to the plink fortune. As he leaves, we watch Highbottom die of poison. We cut to outside the building as snow walks away and credits roll on Hunger Games' Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. Adam, what do you think of the ending here? was a reveal, and it tied into what happened earlier with Snow and his other classmate and such. So it was, it was fine. It just comes so much at the end of this. I think you could have woven the relationship between Snow's father and Dinklage's here. You could have woven that relationship in the middle and really had some drama to play out in the third act. But just having it here at the very end as a, oh, big reveal, it's not a time for a reveal at this point. So it doesn't strike the way that they want it to. I think it still works because it gives context to why he treats him the way he does. But yeah, I feel like it's something that should have been more context as to their relationship. Maybe even a couple flashbacks or you actually see his father at some capacity. I think there are certain shortcuts the movie takes, which is unfortunate given how long it actually is. It's almost like they could have reprioritized what needed the attention and what didn't. Imagine if we saw Dinklage with young Snow. We actually know that they knew each other while he was growing up. Yeah, as much as Dinklage is used in this, I do think he was a little bit underused because this is quite a scene here and I could have used more of it. All right, scale of 1 to 10, what do we give Hunger Games, The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes? And God, I can't wait till I don't have to say that title anymore. Adam, you go ahead and go, sir. You know, this is a movie that for all intents and purposes is about as long and mouth-churning as the title. It's a long movie. It's got a lot to do. This movie falls into prequelitis quite a bit. And for the good and the bad of that, we return to an area that we know. I do think they do a pretty serviceful job of making it feel like it is prior to that world that we've grown to know from the original Hunger Games trilogy of books, quadrilogy of movies. The casting is fine when you get past it. Do I think that Tom Blythe looks like Snow? (laughs) Heck, Snow, he doesn't. But I grow to get over that pretty quickly. Rachel Ziegler does a good job as Lucy Gray. I just don't like what they do with Lucy Gray. But I think she is perfectly fine. I think she could be a good actress. I don't like what the character is written to do here. I'm really interested to see the differences between the book and the movie. I didn't think I would read the book. After seeing the movie, I at least want to read the book. So point in its favor. This thing gets so convoluted within itself that it doesn't straighten out the snakes. Within, it leaves them entangled So some of the story threads, some of the things that would make this a more engaging picture are left by the wayside because we're left to interpret. We're left to really have to think kind of hard to some of these relationships and why they matter. And at the end of the day, we want a Hunger Games movie, but this is more interested in telling the rise of a villain, but then wants to make him a love-struck puppy, but then at the end wants to make him a villain again. So it's interested in that way because... I think this movie is as conflicted as Coriolanus Snow is. It plotted a beginning, it plotted an end, and it leaves itself a little too much in between without straightening itself out. It's not a bad time to watch if you enjoy the original Hunger Games 
or if it was invested in them, I think it's worth watching to see where this goes. But I don't think this movie on its own tells a complete story. The snow that I get walking towards the capital at the end of this, I don't feel is the snow that we get at the beginning of that first Hunger Games. So I think there's still a pretty big disconnect there. The delight in this movie are the actors and actresses who are just standout quality-wise in their talent. Viola Davis is absolutely fun to watch and steals the screen when she's on it. Peter Dinklage the same way. They are captivating, and even the one playing Young Flickerman, and I'm sorry, his name doesn't come to me in my mind. Those three kind of steal the show. Schwartzman, thank you. Who doesn't look like Schwartzman whatsoever? It's not a bad movie, but it sure isn't a good one. It's not the worst of the Hunger Games movies either. That's the thing. I see so much potential here, and that's disappointing. I'm going to give this a six. It's not a bad time. I think it's worth watching. And of anything else, it really makes me interested in seeing or going to read the book, and maybe that's as good of anything about it. So six on ten. Could do better, but sure could have been a lot worse. What's the female protagonist's name again? <laughs> I hate you. You know who Jason Schwartzman's the son of, right? Mr. Schwartzman? <laughs> Adrian! Talia Shire. Oh, shit. I never knew Talia that. Shire. Yeah, he's tied into the Coppola family. Yeah. Him and Nick Cage are cousins. So <laughs> yeah. Wow. Matt? I will give the movie this. It was better than I thought it was going to be, and it definitely gave me more to ponder as I was leaving than I imagined going in. But I will say, it doesn't quite overcome the underlying problem of prequelitis with character stakes, with having to get from A to B. And I feel like that roadmap is missing a couple stops. I understand how he got to where he is at the end of this movie, but I feel like there was more to be done and more to be developed. For a movie called The Hunger Games, The Hunger Games themselves were the worst part of the movie, are the thing I would argue could have been condensed the most. As a prequel, it's not, I would call, heresy by any means, or one of those things where it, root, or, where it taints the movies that come after it. Certainly not that. But I also don't think it 100% works with what it sets out to do. So I'm sort of in the same boat as Adam, where I'm going to give it a six. I enjoyed myself in the moment, but there are a couple instances where I did feel it was a bit laborious. And I definitely think this would have been better suited as a longer story but told in a different medium. I'm going to say something that's going to shock one of the gentlemen on this podcast, because Matt, you and I recorded a wrestling podcast right before I went to the movies to see this. And I was buying tickets as we were concluding that particular show. And I actually exclaimed, holy shit, when I saw that this thing was two hours, 45 minutes. I think that Francis Lawrence should have done his initial instinct and split this thing into two. This is two movies. This is where he could have justified it. He could not justify it with Mocking Jay. And he was the first to tell you that when he was coming up with the decision whether or not he was going to do that. And you know what? He should have gone with his instinct because this particular movie, as long as it is, as I mentioned, the ending is so goddamn rushed and it just does not feel very well written by the end. Oh, and I'll also say too, this movie also suffers from miscasting. Tom Blith, he might do good things in the future. I do not think he does really good things in this movie. I don't think he's a very good actor. Everyone else, though, including Lucy Gray, everyone else I think it does at least okay. Let's start from the top. Viola Davis, tremendous. Peter Dinklage, amazing. Rachel Ziegler, okay. Jason Schwartzman, having a blast. 
fun as fuck. But this movie is really trying to tell the story of how this concept came to be and it's trying to justify it as well as justify who will become the big villain of the series, much like another series we just did, that it just kind of gets in its own way. All that being said, though, I think there are some really good things in this movie. I think the score, tremendous. A lot of what made those films, those initial films that Francis Lawrence did so good, a lot of that is here. Production design is really good. Sound design, movie just rocked me off my seat a number of times. And again, I will say it was fun to see in an IMAX screen. But as a fan of this series, I have the same exact score written down as my other two colleagues. I don't know if we're going to hell or not, but I'm also giving this a six. I just think there's not enough here to justify a higher rating than that. And you know what? If you would have split this thing into two, you might have lost money, but you could have justified the story. So six out of ten for me on Hunger Games, The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. So we've completed our catch-up job, Matt. We've done a big series of prequels, including this particular one. You and I did Killers of the Flower Moon with Mike and Ari. We've kind of caught up on a lot of the stuff we have started and continued, and we are going to finish the Star Wars films eventually. But Matt, why don't you tell them what we have coming up next? And this is something I am really anxious because I have not seen the majority of this series. Okay, so that sounds like it'll be one of those things where I wind up leaning it, which I'm okay with. Yeah, we'll finish up Star Wars later on in 2024, but we wanted to create some distance. But we're going from that to another sci-fi landmark series that has had prequels and sequels. Get your horses, get your Tim Burton, Mark Wahlberg fix, get your Charlton Heston. We're doing Planet of the Apes, because apparently there was a new one coming out that I thought was just a rumor, and then I saw the trailer, which is apparently set in the Andy Circus continuity. So now is as good a time as any to do Planet of the Apes. So we'll do it into a couple of different parts. We'll do the original five films as one series, then we'll take a break, and then we'll go back around late April, early May to do the two reboots, Tim Burton's and new series, up to Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, which is set to come out this spring. Amazing. I remember my dad having these movies on a lot when I was a kid. I remember a scene from Spaceballs <laughs> featuring Planet of the Apes. And of course, I have seen the Tim Burton remake. I saw that in theaters. And I have seen the first Rise of the Planet of the Apes, the Andy Serkis film. But other than that, I am going to coming in completely completely new to this series. I am going to be the newbie. Adam, what's your take on this series? If this is one of those original Apes films, my dad watched them and have them on. But I can't say I ever sat down and watched them all. Definitely saw the Tim Burton one. It's amazing, because even that has Helena Bonham in it. Yep. You <laughs> remember, which got me excited. I know, question me, because that asks questions I don't want to answer. <laughs> and then I saw, when they rebooted it, I saw that initial one with Franco, mainly because it was set here in San Francisco, and I've not seen any of the ones after that. So I've seen, what, about two and a half out of all of these. So it's going to be interesting, one, to find that original five-pack and try to get them all. And I'm, in, I'm, I'm interested. I know people love those originals. we got to look at them for what they are back then. But, yeah, it's going to be an interesting go by the time we get through them all. I have some interesting stories. Despite my kind of lack of seeing these movies, I, I do have interesting stories revolving around them, including something a college professor told me, as well as some funny things about that Tim Burton remake that I look forward to sharing. So there are a lot of things about this series I am looking forward to, for sure. So until next week when we start our dive into Planet of the Apes. And of course, Matt, we are also eventually going to do our year-end show that we always do. Last year it was a three-and-a-half-hour epic. <laughs> 
of listener questions and whatnot, and we're going to do that again this year, so stay tuned for that. But until next week, podcast your way out of this one, Lucy Gray. Thank you, gentlemen. When you're in the middle of the games and you're starving or freezing, some water, a knife, or even some matches can mean the difference between life and death. And those things only come from sponsors. And to get sponsors, you have to make people like you. And right now, sweetheart, you're not off to a real good start. Thank you for listening to this podcast exclusively here at Percolated Media. Let's do it again sometime. And if you would be so kind, please take a moment and give us a positive review and rating on your podcast platform of choice. You really want to know how to stay alive? You get people to like you. It truly helps others find and discover our podcasts. I'm an open book. Everybody always seems to know my secrets before I know them myself. And if you like this review, please go back to percolatedmedia.net or search your podcast streamer of choice for reviews of franchises such as Pirates of the Caribbean, the DC Expanded Universe, Top Gun, and many more. They just want a good show. That's all they want. I just don't want to be another piece in their game, you know? The Three Men and a Retrospective podcast is produced by Garrett, Matt, Adam, and Nathan. But I have a feeling your visit will be brief, so... This Three Men and a Retrospective podcast is edited by Garrett. This is how you greet an old friend. The Three Men and a Retrospective podcast is voice narrated by Adam. I thought we'd agreed never to lie to each other. The Three Men and a Retrospective podcast is for review and discussion, and all clips, music, and audio cues are used as such. How tantalizing to see all your shining young faces on this auspicious day. Let's reacquaint people. Adam, when we go back to those movies, were you a fan of Hunger Games? I was a fan of the book. I was a reluctant fan of the first two books. I mean, this is a 500-page book. It's 520 pages. I could have seen them actually doing that, but I will discuss it. I think that was...
Someone answer that. Wrong, wrong franchise phone. Oh, fuck. Yes. <laughs> Jesus. You're about six months late with that one, sir. Uh, <laughs> Snow hears that there's no price today as we cut to Dr. Volunia Ball. Uh, uh, Bull? Ball? Bull? Gall. Gall. God, I don't know how that came up on my iPad. Volunia Gall. Oh, and the girl from the 13th is Lucy Gray, played by Rachel Ziegler. As she's, from 12, she's from 12, you mean. Oh, tw- I, thought it was thir- I thought it was 13. I no, thir- remember, 13's the one that got blown to shit, supposedly. Oh, that's right. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Uh, of which This I did not like because, of course, she comes from the same district that Katniss does. Hold on, hold on a second. So he reads out the contestants as girl or boy, of which the 12th belongs to Snow. God damn, every time she gets up and sings, I half expect a promotional advertisement for the soundtrack for this movie that they're so desperately trying to sell. Which I bought. Go ahead. Well, good for you. <laughs> you know what? We're doing musicals, god damn it. <laughs> I, I found Dude, I this. gotta pull the music for these fucking clips. For these, for these intros and outros. Come there, on. There. Go ahead. Yeah, I wanted to go to the hanging tree myself and just, <laughs> you know, get it done after a certain point. They blow this arena up before it's even used. And yeah, not use that it was this. fully stocked to begin with, because I do like how primal these games are in yeah. comparison. To it's like the Pan Am equivalent of an empty arena match. <laughs> <laughs> like that 2020 year. Yeah, yeah, it's like having a WrestleMania with no people. But I was surprised. But I find this music really good. Yeah, I think it fits. I think it's a good way to go. So yeah, I was I was all into the score. Matt, you usually don't notice the score. I'm assuming you didn't notice it here too. Well, given the fact it's been a month since I've seen the movie, <laughs> I can't, I can't, I can't give you much comment. Fair enough. That's why I don't usually go to you when it comes to music. <laughs> so if that is there in the book, good on Collins for putting it in there. Now I'm realizing while we're doing the series. God damn it, Garrett. <laughs> Well, the other question um, I don't know is... For anybody that hasn't seen Coal Miner's Daughter... Oh, yeah. I completely think that they took almost exactly shot for shot seeing Sissy Spacek up on stage. And because this is the Coal District, that's exactly what I got a feel from. Good call. I would not have caught that reference. But knowing Francis Lawrence, I've heard the guy interviewed a number of times. He he seems like somebody who's really up on that kind of stuff. He seems really big on his film geekdom. Yeah, I'm sure the guy who made I Am Legend really knows his history. <laughs> And Constantine. Hey, I like Constantine. He did say he's doing a sequel. He said he's on it. So uh, he also did that shitty. Uh, I love Jennifer Lawrence. Red Sparrow. I thought Red Sparrow was actually pretty good. I, yeah, I, I take it. When we do the Last Man on Earth retrospective, we can talk about that. I would love to do that. I have never seen I Am Legend. That one I have not Sequel's seen. Coming out. Yeah. Yeah, we, we will get Oh, we may have to do it. If the sequel actually gets made, we'll do it. We'll have to do it. Snow tells Sejanus that... <laughs> so, 6 out of 10 from me on Hunger Games, The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. All right, Matt, is this when we go from here to King, right? Uh, Well, by the time this drops, let me yeah. take a look. Yeah, take a look at by the time this drops. We're done catching up, I hope. Fire. Oh, we're going into apes next. We going into apes? 
Yeah, because eighths are January. Oh my gosh! All right. Then we take a break and then do King. We take a break. Oops. We're doing the original series, then we do Night Shift, and then we go back to Apes for the new one. Okay. All right. Uh, so we've completed our catch-up job, Matt. We've 